0: This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home.
1: Hello clean tech enthusiasts, my name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community? Do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Welcome to Clean Tech Talk. This is uh, Mike Bernard, your host, with Zach Shahan in the background. (laughs) Today we're talking to Ed Dolan. Now I, I'm going to put a little bit of a gloss on this, Ed and I had a unicorn experience. Um, we actually had a, an exchange without knowing each other on the internet in comment sections that was actually fruitful, civil, and useful. Um, and, and it ended with us agreeing that it would be really interesting to have a conversation that wasn't just an anonymous mediated conversation through the internet. Um, so. Let's just start out with that. Uh, Ed, why don't we start with you telling our audience about yourself and then a bit about the Niskanen Center uh, as well.
2: Okay. Um, Yeah, and thanks for having me on, Mike. Uh, And, uh, yeah, I agree. It's, It's disappointingly rare to have a civil constructive conversation on the Internet on social media, but sometimes it does happen. So that's why we keep going back. Uh, I'm uh, an economist, um, spent most of my uh, career in academia, but I've done uh, some work in uh, government and private sector too. Uh, The outfit I worked for, the Niskanen Center, by the way, that's the pronunciation despite the Ah. fact that it's a Finnish name and the Finns would pronounce it Niskanen, but uh, we pronounce it Niskanen because that's who the original uh, guy pronounced it. But um, so I've been working uh, with Niskanen Center for about three years and I write uh, commentary on a variety of issues. They include uh, environmental issues because I have – Longstanding uh, interest in that Um, way back in the celebration of the very first birthday back in 1970, I got inspired to write a book. Called there ain't no such thing as free lunch as a free lunch and subtitled as a libertarian perspective on environmental policy. Uh, like most of the people at Niskanen, I uh, come from a libertarian background, but I've really backed away from that um, label in recent years, uh, largely because. Of the way that the libertarian movement has been taken over by people that I would say are better described as conservatives, and uh, also, uh, unfortunately, uh, have a different view of uh, climate science and the reality of. Uh, needed climate action than I do. And Jerry Taylor, the uh, director, uh, president of uh, Niskanen Center does. So uh, that's what I do. Uh, Niskanen Center is uh, hard to characterize. Some people still call it a libertarian, even though we sort of a post-libertarian. Some people say right of center. Some people say moderate. Depends on what uh, where you are. Uh, we spend a lot of our time trying to sell ideas that sound progressive to people who are not themselves considered, who do not consider themselves progressive. So I write, in addition to the environment, I write on things like uh, universal health care and um, uh, expansion of the social safety net to include uh, some kind of basic income program and things like that. Excellent. So, uh,
1: can you just give us a little bit on Jerry Taylor? Because you know, fascinating story, and um, you know him. I haven't met him yet. I know other people who know him, but I haven't had that pl- the pleasure myself. And I, I just think it's an interesting story, specifically because he's one of the high-profile side switchers on a big subject.
2: Yeah, uh, well, Jerry Taylor and I have uh, somewhat parallel careers, although we didn't know each other uh, for a long time. Like, he he used to work for Cato Foundation, which is, was one of the premier uh, libertarian uh, outfits in the forget, 80s, 90s, two, early 2000s. Um, and when uh, the Cato Foundation started tipping away from support for environmental action and toward more of a climate denier status. I suppose in some ways, maybe I was an earlier switcher than Jerry does. I wrote a long article for them in the um, Cato Journal for 2000, in 2006, trying to explain how if you took libertarian principles seriously, they would lead you to the idea that pollution, whether it's in the form of dumping garbage on your neighbor's lawn or uh, putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, is an invasion of property rights and contrary to the idea that in a market economy, the prices of goods and services that you buy and sell ought to include their full costs, including our costs of damage you do to other people's properties and so forth. I argued that at length in that article and um, To their credit, they published it, even though uh, I got quite a bit of criticism from in the course of the editorial process. They published what I thought without changing anything. I think that was probably what um, uh, called me to Jerry's attention. And Jerry, in the meanwhile, was uh, one of their spokesmen for the Climate Change is Nonsense School, but he found that uh, less and less tenable over time. And so uh, as Cato became more and more uh, a a uh, spokesperson for the Koch uh, brothers, Uh, He found that it was too much for him, and he switched sides, started the Niskanen Center, which he initially himself characterized as a libertarian outfit, but uh, now he's uh, uh, dropped away from that, too. And if you go to the site, one of the uh, essays pinned on the front page is uh, a long essay he wrote on uh, why he doesn't consider himself a libertarian Anymore, and, in fact, uh, thinks that ideological labels aren't useful. Yeah,
1: it's an interesting thing. I mean, just let's pull this apart just a little bit, because libertarianism, especially in the United States, is a huge um, influencer on politics. And as you say, it's a, there's a tribal ideology associated with it. Um, I, one of your articles that I um, reviewed was referring to the... Uh, what was the name, the uh, the challenge was related to a specific camp that you can end up in and get in the wrong space. Libertarianism has become a tribal identity that excludes empiricism, um, in my perspective. But what I'm hearing you say is that that wasn't always true. Can you maybe just kind of give us a maybe even just a, you know, the, the three minute decade by decade view of why libertarianism has become um, non-empirical on major subjects.
2: Yeah, I think uh, the problem with libertarianism, let's stick a little bit more narrowly to its perspective on environmental policy. But <clears throat> the problem with libertarian environmental policy is that the anchor principle of libertarian, at least for for many libertarians today is what they call the non-aggression principle, which says that, um, in a market, a market economy doesn't work correctly unless everybody agrees uh, not to take aggressive action, uh, which could be physical force or uh, threat of force or fraud against uh, and other people and their property. And uh, libertarians have always looked particularly toward the common law courts uh, in the case uh, uh, to protect that uh, uh common law suits for breach of contract or fraud, or in the case of environment, uh, the uh, suits to uh, prevent people from damaging each other's persons or property through pollution would be, the remedy would be through uh, law of tort and nuisance. And uh, so the problem with that is that that approach makes sense for some types of libertarian Uh, problems. For example, if there's conflicts between um, people growing crops and people grazing uh, cattle on adjacent property and the cattle stray on and uh, eat your um, corn crop, then you can remedy it through uh, lawsuits like that. Uh, For local pollution and for things where property rights are well-defined, it's conceptually a good uh, system. The problem is it breaks down when uh, property rights are poorly defined and when the people that you might plausibly want to call to account for pollution harming you are many in number and far away and hard to take action against, which is classically the case in climate change since the, the, the output of all polluters everywhere in the planet is mixed together to cause harm to everyone on the planet. So libertarians are, are faced with a dilemma when they come to this. On the one hand, they're very clear that uh, pollution that harms other people is a violation of property rights and something needs to be done about it. Uh, on the other hand, uh, remote pollution from many sources can't be remedied through the courts. And so what do you do? Either you come down on the side of saying that the government needs to take some action to stop that kind of pollution, uh, which they object to because they don't like any kind of, that is the doctrine there, libertarians object to because they don't like to see government action in any kind or any kind of taxes, particularly in things like um, uh, carbon taxes or any other kind of taxes. So either you ask the government to take actions and hold your nose at that, or uh, there's an out. And the out is you say, well, there's not really a problem here after all. Carbon dioxide is harmless. We don't have to worry about how to solve the problem of carbon carbon pollution because it doesn't hurt anybody. And by denying science, you can escape from the unpleasant consequences of your ideological beliefs. And this uh, I, w- I would characterize this as uh, very
1: strongly following the pattern of uh, secondhand tobacco smoke harm, as well, where it's also a place where libertarian think tanks and the funders of libertarian think tanks uh, put their ore into the public discourse. Do you want to talk briefly about that to draw the comparisons?
2: Yeah, there are some comparisons there. Uh, secondhand tobacco smoke—it's it's more convenient. Uh, if you say that um we don't have to worry about people smoking in public places because uh secondhand tobacco uh smoke doesn't do any harm but secondhand tobacco smoke is in fact a much easier e- easier problem for libertarians to solve because Uh, they can say, well, maybe some kinds of public places, that's a problem, but at least we can have smoking clubs and people can decide whether people can smoke within their houses and, and corporations ought to be able to decide whether um, to, uh, whether people can smoke at work. And if people don't like that, then they can go work somewhere else and so forth. Uh, You can't, uh, you can't invoke uh, that model for climate change because there's no, place else to go. Yeah, and certainly I, I see a strong
1: thread between the um, same organiz- the same funders, you mentioned the Koch brothers, who were um, funding efforts to prevent regulation of, at the time, you know, completely legal industries that were causing significant negative externalities. Um, and, you know, their joint efforts, their overlapping efforts around the promotion of libertarianism, especially the anti-regulation side, and their... Um, pushing back on science. Um, I, I see a strong comparison there as well. It might, But I, I'm doing this from the outside, whereas you've much more been inside libertarianism. Did you see it as, was it as clear from the inside of libertarianism?
2: Uh, to some people. It, but libertarianism is um, one of the problems with the label is that it's really uh, too broad a group because there are subgroups within libertarianism. There's a group of uh, people who might broadly be called libertarians who prefer to be called classical liberals. Uh, probably the best known thinkers in the, on the classical liberal side of libertarianism would be Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek. And Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek were much more uh, willing to accept the fact that we use markets where they work, and although they usually work better than uh, government regulation, there are exceptions, and when we come to exceptions, uh, then uh, we take some kind of government action where the government acts, but it acts through the market mechanism rather than using brute force. So a classical uh, a classical liberal solution to carbon pollution uh, usually takes the form of recommending carbon tax or some other form of carbon pricing, like cap and trade, and the There is a long tradition in uh, classical liberalism of that sort of thing. For example, um, Hayek's probably most famous book was The Road to Serfdom, which was a protest against uh, growth of socialism in Western democracies. It was published in 1948, I think, uh, and in that he explicitly mentions environmental pollution and a few other problems as places where the market without some kind of a nudge from government like uh, some, some way to impose prices where prices don't exist, where that needs. On the other side of the libertarian camp, you have the more, um, more I would say, hardline or doctrinaire or uh, narrow form of libertarianism, represented by uh, people like um, uh, Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard, uh, who insist on the they really are anarcho-libertarians. They don't want the government to do anything. Those are the ones that get into trouble with the. Or climate change because since they don't want the government to do anything even really to exist uh yet they would like to say that government can solve all problems that's where they box themselves into the corner yeah
1: and those are the ones that i from once again um from the outside of libertarianism looking at it sometimes muted musically and sometimes in horror uh, i see those are the ones more strongly overlapping with um randy objectivism for example and you know, being strong, strongly in favor of the the turgid novels of Anne Land, which you may or may not. React too positively when I say that.
2: Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, they're great novels. Nobody can. put it. <laughs> You start reading Atlas Shrugged, and you can't put it down. I once had a class. Uh, Atlas Shrugged. If you haven't read it, it's about I think it's 750 pages long or something like that. I, w- I was once teaching a class on comparative economics, and I recommended to my students in a Tuesday class that they should read Atlas Shrugged if they want to understand the libertarian perspective on capitalism, and uh, on Thursday morning when the class met, one of my students came up to me, she says, boy, that was really an interesting book, I read it cover to cover without stop. Yeah, well, so one of my
1: backgrounds educationally is uh, English literature. I uh, did, you know, studied English literature at U of T for a four-year degree, and I, uh, you know, was uh, Margaret Atwood, who is the author of Handmaid's Tales, Green Tech*. Um, consultant for a few years, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just going to say that there are differences of opinion about the quality of the writing um, and leave it at that. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) I should say, though, that, you know, you just can't – like all other ideologies, there are splits within splits – and although Ayn Rand is in some way on the same side of the fence as uh, the uh, doctrinaire uh, libertarians you find at Cato, interestingly enough, Murray Rothbart, who is the uh, greatest theoretician of that branch of libertarians. Uh, started out in the early 1950s as a disciple of Ayn Rand going to her uh, inner circle meetings. Uh, And um, eventually he was, uh, this was a very cult-like little group. Eventually he was thrown out of the movement, thrown out of the Randian movement. And the two reasons he was thrown out, number one is that he didn't smoke, because um, if any, if anybody's read uh, uh, Red Atlas Shrugged, they know that there's a little syllogism in there that um, tobacco gives pleasure and capitalists uh, make profits by. Um, Giving uh, people satisfaction through the market, and therefore, uh, tobacco is good, and everybody should smoke. So he didn't smoke, and that made him an outlier. And the other thing that was just drove him out was the fact that his wife was a churchgoer, and since Rand was a, a fanatic atheist, uh, even though Murray himself was not a churchgoer, his wife was, and he just couldn't stay in the movement if he kept that out. So he broke with the Randians, uh, even though he kept much of their ideology. Yeah, certainly my, um, yeah, pulling
1: back just a little bit on the thread, the um, the observation I make right now is that I, I find that anybody who self-labels as a libertarian, I, I can't have a useful conversation with about the vast majority of things. So the Niskanen Center and your shift away from the label, um, you know, and the shift away from the uh, harder core ideology, the explicit choice to not to not identify that way is the rational choice, and you know the, the corollary to that is, uh, as I've published many times, um, conservatism isn't the problem. A conservative, market-oriented approach, having conservatives at the table to discuss market-oriented, uh, you know, mechanisms, not regulatory mechanisms, as part of the suite of policy, is a necessary part the discussion and the ongoing discourse to find the right set of solutions for any given problem. Um,
2: yes, um, you're right about that. Uh, <clears throat> I recently had the uh, uh, occasion to talk to our uh, local representative here. Uh, I live in uh, northern Michigan, and um, our local representative, this guy named Jack Bergman, uh, <laughs> Republican, uh, very conservative. Uh, Retired Marine General, uh, but he also uh, happens to be um, a member of the the House. I can't remember what it's something like the bipartisan caucus on climate change or something like that.
1: Climate Uh, Solutions Caucus, I believe it is.
2: Yeah, Climate Solutions Caucus. That's what it is. So Bergman, uh, conservative as it is, and I probably wouldn't, if I were in Congress, he and I probably wouldn't vote together on more than 10% of the issues, yet yeah, he's an example of somebody you can have an intelligent conversation with on our climate issues, and he thinks that something needs to be done, and you can discuss what that is. Yeah, and you know, I- I'm going to go back to what
1: triggered our conversation, because I think it's a good time to segue. So, um, I-, I published a piece um, in my uh, TFIE publication um, over on Medium, and basically I said that media coverage of climate change faces a perfect storm. And they, the, the points that I pulled out were that there was a challenge of false balance, the media was weakened, um, the media was subject to disinformation campaigns. Uh, co- prominent media figures around the world, such as Andrew Bolt in Australia and Rex Murphy in Canada, etc., were you know, uh, suborned and lobbied by the fossil fuel industry so that they became uh, the spokespeople for that industry, whether they originally had an intent to or not. And and then the rise of infotainment, especially Fox News. Um, And, you know, Ed, you commented um, at length on that, on balance, and we'll get to that in a second. You know, but, uh, you know, what we ended up with was, you know, after our unicorn of an agreement, um, two people actually not, um, slandering one another and using ad hominems but actually having a discussion we agreed on the following we had uh, points of agreement and then we had some points of nuance and i you know this discussion is more about the points of nuance but there are areas of agreement climate change is real serious caused by us requires aggressive action a carbon tax is a useful policy tool and balance in journalism and discussions is essential but then we get into the nuanced discussion of what is balance and how much should we lean on a carbon tax versus other things and that's kind of where i want to take this to now okay so so why don't we go talk about the balanced communication piece and your perspective and then we can have a useful discussion around what we mean and we can talk about the rpc 8.5 and other discussion points that we got into there
2: okay yeah um well I guess uh, you have a different perspective on where the media is because um, I see the media as amplifying the voices of people, but a- amplifying uh, perspectives that make climate change look uh, as bad as they can make it look on the idea that uh, bad headlines will draw readers. And an example of that, I sometimes find in, even within newspapers, of lurid headlines attached to articles that, when you read them, turn out to be uh, relatively, re- are perfectly reasonable articles. For example, I think in our discussion, I pointed to an article from uh, the Washington Post that uh, said uh, in re- that the National Climate Assessment forecast that the U.S. economy would shrink by 10% by the end of the century. Uh, that is what the headline said. And when you read the article and, and uh, follow their link to the report itself, you find that what the report actually says is that the U.S. economy will be 10% smaller by the end of the century than it would otherwise be without climate change, but in fact, it will be uh, six or seven times larger than it is today. Uh, so that's the kind of, of uh, item that I see as as giving an exaggerated view of climate change. Another thing that I see in the media that annoys me, let's say we're reading an article on something like uh, melding of the Greenland ice cap. So their new data has come out, published in some si- reputable scientific journal that says that the Greenland Ice Campus, ASCAP, is melting faster than we thought. And the article will say, well, uh, the rate has increased. Now I'm making these numbers up because I don't have them in front of them. But the rate has increased from 200 million cubic meters a day to 400 million cubic meters a day. And no references this you're left with the idea reading this that the whole green ice cap is about to slide off the continent into the ocean and there's no mention of the fact, again, if, if they give you a link, you click on the link and you find out that this acceleration, sure, it's serious and it's something we need to be concerned about. But it means that the ice cap is going to melt in uh, 400 years instead of 800 years. Uh, so it's not quite as if uh, New York City is going to be drowned by uh, the end of the next presidential administration
1: yeah one of the points there just to pull this to tease this apart we we talked specifically about whether you'd um you know let me actually assert first what i I concur with you on Uh, i spend a lot of my time putting numbers in context um you don't have to say absurd things um but you have to say what the context for the numbers are. And, and I do that a lot around solutions. I do that on carbon uh, cap, carbon capture, which we'll, uh, we'll return to later because I, I know we have some disagreements there as well. But carbon capture, the um, messaging from carbon capture mechanical solutions makes it sound wonderful. But every solution that's been implemented is four orders of magnitude off the scale of the problem. Um, and the solution's when you do the assessment um, of different pathways for carbon capture, mechanical carbon capture and chemically oriented carbon capture, they just don't scale and can't scale for a variety of fairly obvious reasons related to basic numbers, math, chemistry, and physics. Um, You know, this is not, you know, PhD level stuff. This is undergraduates can do the math easily and so can high school students. So I agree with you that there's a challenge with, um, illiteracy on the part of journalists and scientific journalists, especially who are trying to represent the problem and not putting stuff in context. So that's the agreement statement, but you weren't saying that that was the challenge that I had when you, you talked about my article, you talked about the challenge was, um, around representing RPC 8.5 as the likely scenario for, you know, the higher end scenario in the IPCC Mm five, Um, reports versus um, other ones. And, you know, so just pulling on that thread a little bit more, the Greenland ice cap statement is a clear thing where uh, the science, uh, as, as we discussed briefly in our, our, our back and forth, the science was clear um, that we were observing accelerated ice cap melting um, before IPCC5 was published. However, there was no explanatory mechanism in the scientific Uh, Research for why. And so it was not understood to be whether it was an aberration or a symptom that was persistent. And so it was excluded from IPCC 5, which means the RPC 8.5 scenarios for um, oceanic rising um, underrepresent the actuality because the further science and research has found an explanatory mechanism and aligned the actual ice melt that's observed with the scientific understanding and it is an artifact uh, a systemic artifact not an aberration and and so um, for those of us like me who are trying to do balanced communication around climate change and implications I lean into the RPC 8.5 scenarios and you know having read all the a lot of the literature on this and talked to climate scientists I, I say that's actually a really good thing to lean into. But your concern was that that's perhaps not appropriate. And it gets to an interesting question, which is less about which one of us is right or wrong. But out of IPCC 5, which represents a conservative state point in time for the thing, um, which communication will get the best results? Which is, you know, I think we're both in line with getting the best results from communication. Within that you know blue box in my continuum chart, yes, so you know, you know having gone back and forth and having a, a different you know, different set of information perhaps than you had before, well did your position change because you were leaning towards um, other scenarios in IPCC5 around sea level rise, what do you, what's your current perspective?
2: My current perspective is, you know, again, on communication, when you read something like the the uh, National Climate Assessment paper, if you are that, first of all, you should accurately represent where their median projection is, whether it's projection for uh, carbon concentrations or temperature rise or whatever. You should accurately uh, represent what the report says and then if you think that the scientific evidence as you interpret it means that there's a higher probability, there is a is after all a substantial probability of something on the 90th percentile occurring, then you need to uh, articulate why you think that's the case. To give an example that's very often cited, when RCP 8.5 was originally developed, it was developed on the basis of a scenario that involved a uh, return to coal. And the way we got all that carbon into the atmosphere was why, by scientists uh, stopping the progressive de-emphasis on coal and going back to burning more and more coal, reversing the progress against coal that had already been made. Now, I think that that has gone out of fashion, and from what I read now um, – people that are worried about getting into the higher reaches of the probability distribution on climate change are, are relying more on other sources of carbon. And so in other words, we, we stay with uh, the emissions scenario, but we uh, uh, back away from the Uh, details and we say we're going to get it from um, melting permafrost instead of from carbon or something like that. This is probably something you know a lot more about than I do because being a mere economist, uh, I I have only a reading acquaintance with, uh, not a working acquaintance with those details of the scenario.
1: Oh, to be clear, uh, I only have a reading acquaintance with them as well. I just spend a lot more time nerding out on the science than you do uh, because that's my preferred nerd area. (laughs) okay fair enough you you and i can have a useful conversation about aspects of economics because i also nerd out on economics but i'm also not a phd of economics Uh, i'm broad but nerdy is the best way to put it um but it gets back to the communication so as we think about communication there are three things probably i'm going to pull out because there are always three the first is who is the audience the second is For that audience, what message will actually resonate and get them to action? And three is, what action do you want them to take? Yeah, this is straight Aristotle's rhetoric. Uh, And I have also done Greek, um, uh, Aristotelian, uh, dramatic unities and all those stuff. So um, I'm I'm broadly nerdy. Um, But it's the same question. Um, Who is the audience for the climate communication? In the case of balanced communication in the media... It is the body politic that consumes media, Mm -hmm. which is not all of them,
2: right? You
1: know, because there's a lot of people who are who just don't pay any attention to any news. There's a lot of people who quite rightly are suspicious of the balance in the media. Um, There are people who are stuck in infotainment bubbles in the Fox News and Breitbart categories, Um, and then there are people who um, you know. (laughs) Just don't vote so it doesn't matter what you do, what you say to them. Um, But, you know, as we narrow down the audience, what we need to do is think about segregating the audience just as you segregated the people, libertarians, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have to pick your target for what group of people you're going after. So it's an interesting question. Um, You know, as we think about climate communication, No message is going to be perfect for every audience, Um, but we do want to motivate the things we agree on. Climate change is real, serious, caused by us, requires aggressive action. We need to... We live in Western democracies and have lived in Western democracies in various parts of the world. Uh, In my case, in Western democracies on the other side of the world, even, which... You know, makes the Western democracy then kind of an interesting question. <laughs> but those Western democracies, we have to motivate the populace to consider climate change serious, to compare it to other things that are more urgent and easier for humans to internalize um, and get them to vote for parties which actually accept the science and have action plans. So you know, there's an interesting question there, and then the, you get into the question of journalist ethics. And that's three or four or five things strung in a row. But, so which out of those conceptual pieces do you want to pluck out and react to?
2: Okay. Uh, yeah, let me grab one out of that, uh, <clears throat> because this is really uh, a, a, a core mission of the whole concept behind uh, Niskanen Center, and that is <clears> – <throat> um, In the climate debate, in trying to uh, be uh, persuasive, who is the audience? The audience that matters are not the people uh, who are already committed. If somebody is uh, already a backer of the Green New Deal, um, you're just preaching to the choir when you address when you when you uh, tune your rhetoric uh, to the kind of thing that they want to hear and what they want to hear often is uh, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and uh, it's uh, every day we look at the numbers, they're worse than they were the day before. Uh, But the audience that really matters for action is the matters that is in the middle of the spectrum because it's only the exposed face of the mind that we can mine any product uh off of and the exposed face here is the people in the center we need to say who is it that is not now committed to climate action who we might be able to persuade to jump on the bandwagon and doing something about that um for example to make a concrete example um the um Gernot Wagner, who is one of my uh, favorite climate economists in Spokane, who used to work with the late um, Marty Weitzman on this matter, have the idea <laughs> that in order to address this uh, middle part of the spectrum, or at least a segment of the middle part of the spectrum, you need to frame... Uh, climate action as a problem in, uh, risk management because a lot of people are saying, oh, risk management, that's right. Uh, when we, uh, uh, plant our crops or run our businesses, uh, or, uh, Build our house or something like that, yeah, uh, maybe we ought to build our house so that it can withstand an eighty mile an hour wind, even though the average wind speed in this area rarely exceeds forty miles an hour and things like that so so you have to figure out how to address the how to address the people in the middle or the people a little to the right of the middle. Uh, how can you talk to them without Offending them. So let, let's pull that apart. Let's look at Pew Research Center
1: from you know early 2019. They did. Uh, they've been doing um, assessments around committed Democratic voters, um, committed Republicans, people who lean Democratic mostly vote Democratic, people who mostly lean Republican, and the actual people who are independent who go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been doing this since 1994. Is the numbers that I have. Um, you know, available to me through 2018. And what they found is, you know, that um, it used to be that there was a net 33% of independents, roughly a third, and now there's a net 38% of independents. And I'll I'll pull out some Monmouth polling on, on this in a little bit because it's important. But, you know, there's three or four things there. One is that since 1994, the number of committed um, Republicans and Republican leanings have declined substantially. Um, the number of committed democratics and those who lean democratic has increased substantially. And the number of independents has shrunk a little bit. So that's statement one, is the number of independents, the actual number of independents is low. The second statement is that the balance of the electorate is shifting towards democratic um, committed Democratic voters and people who lean Democratic voters. And then the third thing is that, is that net 38% of the voters are independent. So now I switch to Monmouth University polling from late 2018, which found that even 68% of independent voters, people who you know, by the same language asserted that they were independent, 68% thought that climate change was very serious or serious. And so, you know, it it draws into question what is it we're trying to achieve in communication when 68% of independents, um, never mind Democratic voters, but 68% of independents agree that it's real and it's serious. And the further thing that Monmouth University polling found was that 69% of the U.S. electorate, as polled by Monmouth in their, you know, every three to four year polling, 69% of all voters, wanted the government to take action on the human causes of climate change. And the wording is important because it's human causes. This is not an assertion of all or none human causation, because there's a variance and nuances there. But it was 69% wanted the government to take action. So we start to look at this middle, and it starts to look a lot less like a middle that you actually have to be persuasive of. And it's just motivate them to actually vote intelligently for a party that's there. And so, you know, when we talk about risk perception, uh, I think, and now we're going to start talking from Kahneman, that the framing of risk management and the framing that we've allowed to occur in terms of some of these communications and the framing that you've internalized has been laden upon us by people who are asserting that the center is a lot further from the center than it really
2: is. Okay. Uh, But I'm, yeah, I, I, I get that. And, you know, I've seen those numbers too. Um, I I wouldn't though uh, say that when I say I want to go at the people who you can get at or the margin, uh, the, the open face of the coal seam or whatever, although that's a bad analogy, but um, (laughs) you look at these same numbers and you say, okay, that uh, of people who say that they're committed Republicans, 90% uh, are opposed to a carbon tax, let's say. Well, but that means 10% of committed Republicans are favorable to a carbon tax. What if we could get that up to 12%? Then we get another chunk of the voters on our side. And so what are you going to say when you go out to give a talk to those people, which I sometimes do? Um, And what, what are you going to say to them you're certainly not going to start off by telling them that the way to get effective action on climate change is first we have to get rid of capitalism because uh, carbon pollution is caused by corporate greed. I mean, they, you can't get the words out of your mouth before they've stopped listening to you. Um, is, uh, but that's so, an extreme example. It's not an extreme example. Uh, it's an example of. Uh, I mean, if you read uh, every day articles are public, you you can find articles uh, in the uh, social media and uh, and other places on that. You have people like the 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 backers of the Green New Deal explicitly take that position that um, we got to attack capitalism first. That's the whole Democratic socialist platform uh, um, which is, very, I would which is dis- very large I would disagree
1: substantially with that characterization so let's let's test this a little to, bit. This okay
0: I just want to, uh, a few things keep building up uh, so I'm curious to, just to jump in for a moment uh, on the one the first one I' just start with that topic because I think it's actually um, it's very fascinating to me people who are not Democrats very strongly I'd say across the board, almost see that as true, and it's uh, it's really interesting to me because uh, being inside as a, as a Democrat, you know, I, I don't agree with that at all from my perspective, or from most people's perspective I know, but I do know certain big name people like Naomi Klein um, who speak more along those lines, who who are, who are perhaps more dramatic with the language about that, and then other people even in Congress, for example, AOC, who will. Um, focus very strongly on the, the need to fix capitalistic problems and, and problems in our capitalistic system, but who don't really want to dismantle capitalism. So it's, a, it's really fascinating to me that uh, from a messaging perspective how much just a little bit of shift in language and a, and a bit of like a kind of routine messaging around the topic has pretty huge divergence in perspective on what Democrats are for and against, uh, from inside and outside. Uh, so I, I just I, I think that's fascinating to be honest. Which is like, it's, it's shocking to people like me or Mike and me when we hear that as as, con- as uh, believed to be the norm. But I have heard it enough from people who are not Democrats that I I think it's the norm to think that if you're not. Dem- so it's just it's like it's like there's a big gap. But
1: So I I, I will be clear that yes, people like Naomi Klein do make characterizations, which even to my my ears, as a fiscal centrist and a social progressive, um, you know, someone who is in favor of a managed uh, a a managed market, a regulated market Mm -hmm. with market mechanisms and regulations. you know, who is strongly in favor of the value proposition of the innovation that capitalism brings and the ability to gain, create amazing efficiencies through market mechanisms. You know, uh, I listen to Naomi Klein and I think, wow, um, I, I have the same reaction to Naomi Klein that I have to Marx. They're really great at defining the problem and their solutions really suck. Mm-hmm. I read No Logo, and I thought her definition of branding was the most clear, concise, and level-headed branding discussion I'd ever read. And the second half of the book was garbage. you know. And so Marx, same thing. The, a uh, Marxist centrally planned economy is much worse than a capitalist economy with a regulated market and intervention by the government for the greatest good for the greatest number. It's leveraging the best of both worlds. Um, and I'll be really clear, I have read the Green New Deal. I have read the words of AOC. I've parsed them, I've said, Stabilism, and they're not calling for the end of capitalism. But, you but know, you I know agree what, that you Naomi know Klein what, could make some of those kind of statements, and there are people who yeah. make those kind of statements, but that's not what I'm talking about. They're just you know what, off to of the left field. So I, I agree know. with you, Ed, that going in front of those 10% of Republicans and you know, using that anti-capitalism, capitalist language of, um, you know, that is a relatively small portion of the discourse isn't useful, but I also think it's framing it in an appropriate way.
0: Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I think, Mike, uh, I think what happened as soon as that came out, even before it came out, that framing started very, very strongly. And that's and once that framing's, uh, you know, in someone's mind, it's hard to kick it out without strong evidence, you know, stronger than, than even basic but evidence.
1: This is my point. But You're um, uh, accepting but, uh, the framing of the people who are opposed to it. And, Ed, I'm yeah. asserting that you and the Niskanen mm. Center have this challenge. It's a Kahneman framing statement. Mm-hmm. You have to well, first reset the frame and then have a useful discussion with the reset yeah. frame as opposed to accepting yeah. the frame that's been laden upon it. Yeah. And but I do... To- the Center asserting that all this leftist nonsense, this far-left socialist, communist stuff, is there. That's not accurate.
2: Even I'm the, listening to lis, listening to listening to Bernie Sanders at the debates, I hear a message that is skeptical about market solutions that views corporations as uh, the enemy that has to be defeated, that our problems are based on too much corporate influence in political life. And I mean... In- uh- They may not say he may not come up there and say explicitly that we have to replace capitalism. And he says, no, 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 I really mean Denmark and so forth. But but there's a lot of rhetoric out. What comes out of that? If it's not even what comes out of that is the skepticism against the market as a whole, and therefore that verges into a rejection of, uh, among other things, of any market mechanism for dealing with climate yeah. change, I would, Jig- I would, if you, particularly moment, carbon
0: taxes. If you give me a moment, I'd like to transition uh, through it, but I want to start with, you know, even within the Democratic Party and debate, you have this dramatic sort of rhetoric about soci- socialism and Marxism that's, I think, way outside the bounds of what's being proposed, but even the Democrats, you know, the centrist Democrats, whatever, are, like, react reactionary with this, which is, uh, I think, interesting fascinating, but I think way off... Way out of balance and off topic. As as an example, someone talked to a a top member of the CDU party in um, Germany recently and asked about Bernie Sanders' actual views, policy views. And they, this is a center right party in Germany, and they said, in our party, he would fit in. He might even be on the right side of things more than the left side of things. So I think it's you know it's, it's it very. I think the key thing with what he's proposing, what AOC and others, is they're identifying specific what they see as uh, universal basic rights, like you have a universal right to a a stable climate and to healthcare, and they see the market perversion as we don't even get these basic rights to live uh, uh, that we should get. So, So I think they wanted to basically fix issues on those specific topics where they think there's basic universal right, not other topics where it should be competitive. And I don't know enough about Bernie's views on some other topics, but you can see that's in- that's consistently what he focuses on climate health care, and he's even been quite um, uh, you know attacked on the from the left for his rights his views on gun rights and that kind of thing but mm-hmm. uh, but but transitioning is, I think uh, I want to get back to that topic of messaging, which I, was really interesting about the target. Who, you, who you're messaging to. My bachelor's thesis almost 20 years ago was focused on the difference between environmental concern and environmental action. And they've been focused on a, on a you know, liberal arts college community where you know they're very far left wing. And even there, you had very high rates of you know market of environmental concern and very low rates of action to respond to even like the most basic things people were not doing. Uh, the easiest things uh, people were not doing despite professing dramatic concern for the environment. So I think there's always this challenge of, you know, you survey people about their concerns, but but they're very disconnected from their actions. And I think the target audience, if you want to have a target audience, if you're not just putting information out there, your target audience, I think a lot for a lot of people, it's still, it's motivating people who say they're very concerned, but they're not doing anything about it. So I think it's about, it's not necessarily about um, people who don't think the science is real—it's more about people who think it's real, or you know, they haven't—they they believe it's real, but they don't have a strong. Uh, concern about it, to, to move, to act on it, or to prioritize it over other matters. And I think that's what a lot of people in, in the field are, are trying to focus on, is getting people to treat it more seriously and, and act on it, not just say they, they're concerned about it. But, and then the, the last thing for me, and then I'll probably hopefully step I think, step out, but it's a very fascinating discussion, um, is just also um, regarding what you've mentioned earlier, Ed, about... Uh, about media coverage. I mean, I think we have a dramatic problem in the media these days because you have we've democratized publishing, which makes an enormous abundance of published material out puts an enormous abundance out there, which makes the value of publishing lower, the value of journalism lower, and so to survive, you have to be spread thinner than you should be. You have to do things quicker than you should. You have to clickbait. You know, the, the title you know clickbaiting titles is very common, even. When you try not to, it can, become, it can work its way into your, your process of just trying to have a, a title that's going to get people's attention to read the article. Um, and there's this challenge of, you know, is it conveying the f- accurate context or is it click, click baby? And, yeah. and, and so you just have this consistent problem, I think, across any, all of the media, whether it's professional or not, of people publishing stuff that's inaccurate because they just didn't spend the time to look into it well enough, to phrase it well enough. They didn't have time to do their job correctly. Right. And I think that's a problem that um, all sides face. And for s- somehow we like arrange ourselves in communities or bubbles where, you know, you look at the media perhaps and say it's too left leaning, and I'll look at the media and say it's too right leaning, because of the problem, the, the mistakes we consistently see, which can be on both, which are both on both sides. We just sort of take more offense maybe to the ones that are on. Uh, on the other side from our general ideology or point of view. And I think that's just a big problem with the media. And as the, the, the problem also is the media is critical to our society. It's critical to democracy. So you have a problem of, you know, it's a critical part of what we have and we can't just like throw it out and say it's all fake news, but we also have to realize there's a big challenge we're facing with too much inaccuracy, too much quick coverage. And 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 not leaving any solution there, but I think just wanted to fill in a few of my thoughts on what you guys are discussing about, you know, these communities, uh, messaging, and about the target audience, which I think is really, for a lot of people, about how do you get anyone to act, whether it's in your community, Ed, or Mike and my community is like, how do you just get people in your community to take it seriously enough and to look at the context enough to act appropriately, not necessarily um, to believe some something they already believe? But anyway, anyway. Yeah. That's my take. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix.
2: If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more cleantech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund a cleantech talk.